I mentioned earlier that next week we plan to begin looking at John's Gospel on Sunday mornings. And this morning we're going to turn to a passage that gives us a kind of bridge between the letter of James, which we finished last week, and John's Gospel starting next week. James taught us about living faith, faith that's active. John is going to teach us about the object of our faith, Jesus. He is the one we put our faith in. He is the one we serve. And this morning we're going to look at the purpose of our faith and service. And also, we're going to see the reality of our own limitations as God's people. We're going to be reminded, if we needed reminding, that we are not superheroes. Our passage this morning is about treasure in clay jars. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're looking for that in the church Bibles, it's page 1161, or in the larger print Bibles, 1795. 2 Corinthians 4. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And we're jumping in, of course, to the middle of the letter. So just to situate ourselves, in chapter 3, Paul has been talking about his own God-given work. He is a minister of the new covenant, he said in chapter 3. A covenant is a binding agreement or a promise. And the old covenant was set up in the Old Testament when God brought his people out of Egypt and he met with them at Mount Sinai. We're told he made a covenant with them there. But the new covenant was set up at the cross of Jesus Christ. His blood sealed that new covenant. God is committed in that covenant to save those who put their trust in Jesus. And he has committed to change them. By his spirit, he will transform his people to be like Jesus. And Paul says that his ministry is to spread the news of this new covenant in Christ's blood. He calls men and women to respond to what Christ has done. They do that by turning from their sin to Jesus, acknowledging him as their savior and their Lord. Paul has explained that in chapter three, and now we jump in at chapter four, verse one, and we'll read the whole of chapter four. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is God's word, and it's a passage of God's word that is full of big contrasts. Paul talks about treasure in clay jars. He talks about life in the midst of weakness and death. And this passage also helps us to understand our own lives. It shows us how we can have hope and fulfillment even in the midst of decay. Paul starts out by talking about the treasure. And he explains that the treasure is a powerful message. In verse 1, he mentions his ministry, and we've already seen what that ministry is. Paul's mission in life is to spread the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also says in verse 1, he has this ministry through God's mercy. He says that because Paul used to be a fully committed enemy of Jesus and his followers. The book of Acts tells us about that. Paul tried to stamp out the church, not to build it. But Paul was transformed when he met the risen Jesus. And now Paul knows that was God's mercy to him. And by God's mercy, he now has the honor of serving Jesus. And keeping that in mind, he says, helps him not to lose heart. We'll see later on, he had plenty of reasons to lose heart. Paul faced a lot of opposition, and some of it was violent. He took plenty of beatings for the good news that he preached. He spent plenty of time in prison for it. Lots of people didn't accept the good news as good news. And isn't it the same today? But when you and I remember God's mercy to us, 
and the honor it is to serve Jesus, then we don't lose heart. Paul goes on to say, not only does he refuse to lose heart, he refuses to mess about with the message. Verse 2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul knew very well the temptation to tamper with the message, to make it more appealing or to make it less offensive. Many people are offended to hear that they're sinners and that they can't save themselves. Most of us like to see ourselves as not quite perfect, but just about good enough. Certainly better than the neighbors. But Christianity says no one is good enough. We all deserve God's wrath. We all need a substitute. We need someone who took God's wrath for us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. So Jesus is our only hope. Many people are offended by that part of the message too. The exclusiveness of Christianity. The claim that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. The good news offends people. So Christians have always felt the temptation to tone down the message, to make it more appealing and less offensive. And no doubt Paul must have felt that temptation too when he got yet another beating because of the message. But he didn't tone it down. He says he will not distort the word of God. Why? Well, he gives two reasons for that. First, he won't distort it because it's simply the truth. It might not be popular, but it is reality. We do need a savior and Jesus is the only savior. Paul won't mess with the message because it's true. And secondly, because this message brings spiritual light and spiritual life. And Paul explains that human beings desperately need spiritual light and life because we're spiritually blind and dead. We all start out that way. Look at verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age is the devil. And Paul says, because of the devil's work, people can't see the goodness of the good news. They might be disappointed with their life. They might live with a sense of unease and discontentment. But in general, people don't see they have a sin problem. And they don't see that Jesus is the solution. They don't see the glory of Christ. People can be in perfect physical health. They may have great intelligence and great eyesight, but they still have this massive blind spot. And if you're a Christian, you will almost certainly have witnessed that. 
You speak to someone about Jesus or you listen with them to a message about Jesus and you realize the truth that is so amazing to you has just bounced off that other person. Or it's gone in one ear and out the other. Now it's possible, of course, that the speaker didn't explain the message well or you didn't explain it well. That's possible, but it is just as likely that you explained it perfectly well and the other person just can't see it. And Paul knows all about that reality. He knows all about spiritual blindness, but he doesn't give up sharing the good news. First, because it's true, and second, because it brings spiritual light and spiritual life. Paul knows people are spiritually blind and dead, but he also knows God uses the good news of Jesus to take away spiritual blindness and death. The message Paul shared with people and the same message that we share is a powerful message. Paul himself has experienced its power. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. At the start of that verse, Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, the account of God creating the world. Genesis 1 referred to God creating physical light in the universe. But here, Paul says, as incredible as that was, it's equally incredible when God creates spiritual light in men and women's hearts today. We know how spiritually blind people are. So only God's power could replace that blindness with the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Only God could do it And he does. Paul says to us, he did it in us, didn't he? Wasn't there a time when the good news of Jesus meant nothing to us? It seemed irrelevant or unbelievable or offensive. It made us bored or amused or angry even. It didn't make us bow down and worship God. But then something changed. We saw ourselves as we really were. Sinners who need a savior. We saw Jesus as he really is. The son of God and the only savior. We saw it and we put our trust in this good news. That transformation Paul wants us to see is God's work. Over in chapter 5, Paul is going to call it God's new creation work. Creating the world was a powerful work of God. Creating spiritual light and life in the human heart, that's an equally powerful work of God. So Paul knows the message he shares is powerful. God uses it to bring life. It's a treasure you and I cannot put a price on. But now Paul points to a major contrast. 
The message is powerful, but the messengers are desperately weak. Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. The treasure of the gospel is carried about in clay jars. Meaning, the powerful message is presented by weak messengers. Now today, clay jars are likely to be expensive items, actually. Pottery is more of a luxury item. But when Paul was writing, clay jars were the equivalent of milk cartons or Coke cans. They were throwaway items. Archaeologists have come across whole rubbish heaps of clay pots. They broke easily, and when they did break, they were just thrown out and replaced. That's the background to the picture Paul gives us here. And it's not very flattering to us, because we are the clay pots. But then again, Paul includes himself among the clay pots. Paul didn't go through life like Superman. Trouble didn't just bounce off Paul. It tended to knock him over. He says he's hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. Just like you and I are sometimes. Paul is honest about his own weakness. He doesn't try to cover it up. Why not? He doesn't try to cover it up because he knows that his weakness makes something very clear to everyone. It proves it is the message about Jesus that's powerful, not Paul. And so he says in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay for a reason. It's to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. If we were supermen and women, We might give the impression Christianity is about human power and human ability. And we might start to get that idea ourselves. But our weakness is obvious. We know it ourselves and everybody else almost certainly knows it too. We don't just glide over problems and difficulties. We get jarred by them. We get wounded by them. We get bruises and scars as we go through life. But that just shows God's power all the more clearly. It's not our strength that keeps us going. It's God who keeps us from being crushed by despair or destroyed by the hard knocks we take. And Paul is thinking, Specifically here of hard knocks that come because we're following Jesus. Because we're committed to obeying him. Because we refuse to compromise the truth about him. 
No doubt Paul had normal troubles like everybody else does. But he had additional troubles because he lived to serve Jesus. The Bible is very honest about that. The blessings of following Jesus are incomparable and eternal. And along with those blessings come difficulties. Some of the things Paul is hard pressed by and struck down by would probably go away if he would deny Jesus. The people who beat him up and throw him in prison might leave him alone if he denied Jesus. Paul is not surprised when he suffers for following Jesus because the Jesus he follows was a Jesus who suffered. Look again at verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What does it mean to carry around in our body the death of Jesus? Well, Jesus' life on earth was one long death. Remember, he is the eternal son of God. And so to be born as a human baby meant dying to the glory of heaven, giving it up, exchanging it instead for an animal's feeding trough, being born to parents who apparently were dirt poor. And then as he grew, Jesus died to human popularity and position. He was a carpenter who became a traveling preacher. He didn't own a home. He didn't own a donkey even to get around on. Everything Jesus used, he had to borrow. He was hated and opposed, and finally he experienced physical death on a cross. A death in utter humiliation, never mind the pain. Jesus' life was one long death. And here Paul says, if you and I are going to follow Jesus, our lives will be like his to some degree. We will carry around in our body the death of Jesus. But Paul says that brokenness we experience is not pointless. It has a purpose. It is so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Paul says that because the Jesus who suffered and died on the cross did not stay dead. God showed his power by bringing his son out the other side of death. Every Easter Sunday, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection like we did in our first song this morning. We give glory to God for his life-giving power. And here Paul says something similar goes on for every follower of Jesus. Physically, we're like clay jars. We're weak messengers. And so when God supplies us with strength in the midst of our weakness when he brings life to others through our message, when that happens, the glory and honor go where they should go. They go to the God who brings life out of death. So if you can sense your own weakness, maybe you sense it particularly today, 
If you feel more like a clay pot than a man or woman of steel, then you're in a good place, the New Testament says. Please don't opt out of serving God. Make yourself available, even in your weakness. Pray for opportunities in your situation and trust God to reveal his power in the midst of your weakness. Maybe you think that's unrealistic. How could God use you? Well then, are you saying you are the one case that's just too tough for God? He could show his power at Jesus' tomb. He could show his power in the life of a broken prisoner like Paul, but he's not up to the task of using you. Do we really want to say that? We're all weak messengers. Our specialist weakness may be physical or mental or emotional. In most cases, it's a combination of all sorts of weaknesses in our life. But God chose to use weak messengers like us. And he did that so it will be obvious. This all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. If we pause at this point, we might be feeling a bit flat about this in spite of all we've seen so far. It's great to be reminded we have a powerful message to share. It's great to know God is glorified when he uses weak messengers, but we might be left wondering, is that all there is? Is Christianity only about weakness and death for us? Well, we've already seen a hint that that is not the case. And in the final verses, Paul says, thankfully, no, it's not all about weakness. In the end, Christianity is about life and power. It's about God's people entering into the glory of God. Look what Paul says in verse 14. He says he speaks not just because the message is powerful, not just because God uses weak messengers. Paul speaks because he knows that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you, people reading his letter, to himself. Paul is looking ahead to the final resurrection. He knows that Jesus' resurrection in the past guarantees our resurrection in the future. If we belong to him, we will share in his resurrection life. So today and tomorrow, these bodies will go on crumbling. Hair will keep on falling out. Bones will get creakier. Aches and pains will get stronger. And for some of us, our bodies will crumble in more devastating ways as we're laid low by serious illness and even terminal disease. Christians are not promised any exemptions from physical decay or mental decay. But here is what sets us apart from the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, physical and mental decay is a slow tragedy. 
Once they begin to feel decay taking hold, they believe the best is in the past. Now they might fight to slow down the decay or they might give in to it. Either way, for the unbeliever, life is a process of saying goodbye to the glory days. But for the Christian, it's different. When you and I feel that same decay, we know the best is still to come for us. That doesn't make the decay enjoyable. It doesn't make pain and illness fun. But those things don't make us despair. They make us more eager for the glory to come. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. Therefore, verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul describes a two-way process here. As our bodies go in one direction to decay, our spirits can go in the other direction to renewal. And just on a side note here, the New Testament teaches eternity is not going to be a bodiless existence for God's people. We're promised new bodies. That's part of what it means to share in Jesus' resurrection. The Jesus who rose from the grave was not a ghost sitting on a cloud. He was a real person. The Gospels tell us he ate food in front of the disciples to prove that. And so as Christians, we do not believe in a disembodied future. The Bible promises us real, full life on God's new heaven and earth. But in these verses, Paul is talking about our experience now. And he says, as these bodies decay, maybe even these minds as well, our spirits the eternal part of us can be renewed day by day. While our bodies go in one direction, our spirits can be going in the other. We can already begin to blossom into the people we're going to be one day when we stand in God's presence. In that sense, we can end this life more fully formed than we are now today. That process can go on even while our bodies go through the most devastating decay. I keep saying this process can take place because it's not automatic. It is possible even for Christians to get more disheartened and more bitter and prickly as they age instead of less. But in these verses, Paul points us to the way of renewal. 
It's to focus on eternal realities. In verse 17, Paul talks about our light and momentary troubles. We might wonder what he means there. Because we know enough about Paul's troubles to know they were not light and momentary. They were severe and prolonged. But the point is, compared with what is to come, even the worst of Paul's troubles seem insignificant. Now, I wouldn't dare to call any of Paul's troubles or any of your troubles light. But Paul suffered at least as much as any of us will, and he called his own troubles light. But Paul was only able to do that because he focused on eternal realities that far outweighed his troubles. The translation in the NIV could be improved ever so slightly. It would be more accurate to translate it like this. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all as we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. In other words, inner renewal happens as we discipline ourselves to look forward. To look up from our physical weakness and decay and focus instead on eternal realities. There is no denying the reality of our physical weakness, but we are renewed as we look above and beyond it to the greater realities ahead of us. The Bible is a totally realistic book. The God who made us understands perfectly how we work. He knows what it's like to live in a physical body. He knows physical suffering can dominate our attention. He knows we have to fight to keep our eyes on eternal realities. We have to help each other to do that. It doesn't come easily for us. And I hope that our time in John's gospel in the weeks to come will be helpful as we focus together on Jesus, the eternal Son of God who gives eternal life. It is a constant challenge to keep eternal realities in mind and in our heart. But as we fix our eyes on those eternal realities, we are being renewed day by day. Our trouble and pain may not get any less, but we will not lose heart because of our trouble and pain. We will not become bitter, angry people because we know the best is yet to come. Ahead of us, there is an eternal glory that far outweighs our troubles. And the amazing thing is, the more we focus on the future, the more alive we are here and now. We can appreciate whatever measure of health and strength we do have today. We can appreciate it without trying to cling onto it in desperation. Because we know as good as those things can be, 
They are not ultimate things. If they go, we know there are greater things to come. And focusing on the future makes us more willing to serve God here and now. We can serve him even when it hurts, even when it's inconvenient, even when it brings trouble on us. We can serve God because we know one day we will serve him in eternal glory. And so we serve him now in expectation. Let's take heart then in our situation and let's respond to God's word as we sing. By faith we see the hand of God. Oh, 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. <laughs> 